You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For you, it is January 18th. But for Jack and I, we are filming on Thursday, January 14th. We're doing this because Monday is Martin Luther King Jr. Day here in the U.S., and that means markets are closed as well as the Real Vision offices. This AMA is a little different. Normally, we have somebody more senior like Raul or Ed here to answer your questions, but Jack and I are the young bucks, and we have a different perspective on markets. So we are going to bring that perspective to you today, and I'm excited to hear from Jack and selfishly to share a little bit of my own perspective because I generally do hold back a little bit. Um and so I, I want to skip the niceties and get right into the questions. Jack, we have a question from Pavel, which says, could you two speak a little bit about your careers up until the point you joined RV? I believe neither of you have a traditional finance background, but are clearly up to speed. How did you make the transition and what did you do to catch up so fast? Uh, thanks, Max. It's great to be here. I think we got so many questions from the Real Vision Exchange. Um, it's always great when you have an AMA and you get just such a uh, you know, a flood of questions. So let's get right into it with, with Pavel's question. So I had a variety of internships uh, in college. Uh, probably the most notable one would be uh, at a startup that was in the travel sector, which is you know obviously not so good of a sector right now with COVID. Um, but it was it was called uh, Rally Bus, and it was uh, crowdsourcing um, you know uh, demand for buses. So we actually had a lot of business going to sort of uh, protests and all sorts of things. So it was like, oh, you're you're meeting the same types uh, types of people um, who you know the same types of people who want to go to a fish concert. Let's say they tend to be the same sorts of people, so they'd get along on a bus. That, that was sort of the idea, and that was exciting. Uh, I also interned at Bloomberg, where I was on the research and strategy team, uh, working on a variety of, of of projects, such as like the the user function um, on. Bloomberg, where when you log into Bloomberg, depending on which role you're in, like you're an equity, you're on the equity sell side, oh, you're on the bond buy side, you have different functions that sort of come up. So that was uh, one of the projects I worked on. And so I became very familiar with the terminal. And Max, when I was uh, uh, l looking for a, a full-time job at Real Vision, that was, you, you remember, uh, that was one of the uh, skills that you were looking for was someone who knows how to use Bloomberg uh, in order to make charts. So but so uh, despite the fact that I knew how to use Bloomberg, I would say that I still had so much to learn, uh, you know, starting up from day one at Real Vision. And it really was starting at Real Vision when I'd say my uh, education in full um, began. And I say I've learned a tremendous amount from the contributors as well as the people who work here. So that's my story. Uh, Max, what about you? Yeah, so mine is similar, uh, a little different. Uh, I, I'm a few years older than Jack. Jack actually, you know, he didn't mention it, but this was his first full-time job. That's why all of the experience he listed before were internships. So we, we luckily, we plucked Jack right out of Brown. 
Um, but I, I'm two years older and I happened to have one job before Real Vision. I worked at an insurance company. Um, it wasn't exactly, you know, the, the perfect job in the world. And I thought maybe I, I could work my way into the bond department and get to learn some bond math there. And, you know, insurance companies are rather limited in what they can do. Um, but it, it's still a way to, to get your hands on a big pool of money and, uh, and learn from, from some skilled people. Well, th that didn't end up working out, and, and I got an opportunity to come here and, and work at Real Vision. Um, but before that, I was, a, I was a subscriber to Real Vision, and that was a huge part of my um, financial education was watching Real Vision. That really started in college. I was a, a physics major at Ohio State who realized very quickly um, I was not going to advance the field, most likely. Uh, and if I did make it through and get my PhD, I'd probably be uh, teaching freshmen at some podunk university um, in the middle of nowhere. And so I, I had to do something else with my life. And uh, I didn't want to start over in school. I wanted to finish my physics degree. And I started, you know, this was like 2015, 2016, 2017. I started uh, learning about finance. And I had always been tangentially interested in it because, um, you know, my my dad worked in finance. And so I, I learned a lot from him and, and he has been a, a big mentor to me and, and has taught me a lot. And he was actually a Real Vision subscriber and he sent me some Real Vision videos and other, other podcasts around like, like Macro Voices, Capital Allocators with Ted Seides, um, the investing podcast. And, and that's really just like the tip. It's great to watch and listen to content, but what I would do is I would, I would watch a video um, and then I would go read about the things I didn't know, uh, in the video. And then I go watch it again. And you know, that process, you iterate it over and over and over again until now I, I can watch a video at two times speed and, and really retain a lot of the information. So it just comes from exposing yourself, um, going the extra mile to go in and learn things yourself. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say that that curiosity is, is key in, you know, getting better at, at any sort of endeavor. Right. Uh, so Max, you know, and Jeff Gunlock, when he describes his journey in finance, he was in a rock band and then he joined a, a bond investment firm. He says, yeah, you know, within my, the first week, I realized that I knew more and I was smarter than everyone who I was working with. Within six months, I was running a hundred million dollar portfolio. Within a year, I was in charge of all bond offers. So you basically thought that your journey in insurance would be like that with Jeff Gunlack, but then you realize, oh, maybe, maybe so much not. So then you worked at Real Vision and you know you can have a, a much greater impact. So it's glad that we have you here at Real Vision. Yeah, let's just say I was in the wrong, I was in the wrong department um, there and it, it just wasn't wasn't a good fit. Um, but yeah, I mean Real Vision, Real Vision's been great. I I don't manage any money except for my own, and that's one of my favorite things is if you work, say, at on a desk or at a hedge fund, you really can't trade your own account in a lot of ways. Uh, there's there's compliance and rules around that, but here at Real Vision, we we get to uh, we get to invest our own money and do that. And and uh, I feel it's really nice to have skin in the game and you know and to learn and and you learn a lot that way too. Um, and you know, I'm fortunate, especially in a time like this to have a job where I have income that allows me to take risk, but, uh, yeah, taking losses, taking risk and learning, um, well, well at the same time, still being humble and, and understanding that even when you're right or, or a trade works out that it can be luck. Um, so uh -huh. doing a lot of postmortem of your investment ideas and your trades, both the ones that work and the ones that don't work. Um, still helps. And, and, and this is still very much the beginning of my journey. Still have a lot to learn. I, I, I don't think I'm 
don't think I'm even close to the end. Um, but I, I wanted to to move on to another question here. Um, similar question about how how our we've evolved. Um, and, and Ross wants to know how has your viewpoint on cryptocurrencies evolved over time? Uh, that's a good question. So the first financial article that I wrote uh, was for an investment publication at Brown, and it was about crypto. And I published it in uh, early 2018, and it was about crypto had exploded. I think you know Bitcoin was probably about fifteen thousand dollars then. And I uh, called into question the valuation metrics of how you uh, value crypto. And I, it was basically, a, it, it was, for lack of a better word, a, a hit piece on crypto. And my timing could not have been better. Obviously, that, you know, crypto, uh, the, the bubble sort of popped in, in 2018. Um, so I started off being very, uh, not very, but, you know, somewhat skeptical of Bitcoin, excuse me, of crypto. Um, I'd say as I've learned more about it, I've, gotten a little bit more of a nuanced view and you talk about luck i think the, you know i oh my god I, you know i called it on bitcoin i think i really just got lucky with the timing but uh yeah now i've uh i my opinion on crypto is that bitcoin uh deserves or may deserve a small but nevertheless uh you know existent uh part in a portfolio i think it does offer a favorable risk reward um i'm not saying it's a sound investment but i think it's a good trade what do you think, Max? What has your evolution been on, on crypto? Well, I actually started out as somebody who, you know, when I was younger, I, I had a sort of libertarian leaning to me. And I knew people who were, uh, you know, learning about, about the dark web in high school. And, you know, they, they showed me Bitcoin. And, you know, I have a friend who lost his key from Bitcoin he owned back in 2012, who would be, you know, a multimillionaire today uh, from, you know, the change on a transaction that he that he made, you know, just the change coming back to him, the number of Bitcoin would be worth so much today. Um, and so, you know, that was really when I first heard about it. And I just thought it was like internet money uh, used for for the dark web and, and for, you know, things like the Silk Road. And, and I didn't really think about it for a while. Um, and then, you know, it started to started to to move a little bit people started talking about it and i was actually you know very very bullish on it um but then you know i started to learn more and i actually became like a little bit more skeptical partially because you know the use cases when i started out learning about it were about you know transactions and it's going to be the digital dollar and and all that and you know that really shifted and when in a company, for instance, when a business like their use case is always shifting or, you know, the story is always different, um, like uh, like in a gold mine, like it's the same drilling results, but it's a different story every time about like why the drilling results are good. Like that's not a good sign. Um, and so that that made me more skeptical. Um, but uh, nothing changes sentiment like price. So um, and that. Obviously, uh, 2017, I really, you know, kind of missed that one. Um, and so I started paying attention to it. And and I've participated a little bit in this last run. And at, at different points in time, it, it's gotten up to be a higher percentage of my portfolio really than any other holding. Um, but it it doesn't, I, I'm not irresponsibly long, uh, perhaps to my own detriment, where we will find out. Um, and then as far as like altcoins and stuff like that go, like 
here at Real Vision, we have to be generalists. We really do. We cover so much. We cover so many different markets. And I mean, it's really complex and there's a lot of different stuff going on in there. And so it, it I actually am less skeptical of the DeFi blockchain-based technology. Like I think that there are plenty of use cases for that, but like I just don't have the time to dive in and do the due diligence that I need to do um, to to really you know go all in on a on a specific altcoin or technology like that. So you know uh, it doesn't make up a part of my portfolio. Again, probably uh, potentially to my own detriment. Um, but that that's kind of where I stand. You know, I do think that there is a semi-religious uh, like aspect to the way a lot of people feel about Bitcoin. Like that makes me uncomfortable. It makes me nervous. Like they could be right, but um, I, I don't I don't really like that too much. It, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, right, Max. Just going back to what you said about the shift in the use cases, the shift of the narrative. Were you referring to the fact that, say, in 2012, 2013, early on, and in the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, uh, that that person um, promulgated Bitcoin as a means of exchange, as this is going to be a digital dollar, a way to buy things so that you don't have to rely on Visa and MasterCard and, and the Federal Reserve. Whereas now the narrative is not so much it's going to be a means of exchange, but rather it's a store of value. It's a leverage play on central bank balance sheet. In other words, it's an investment. It's not a currency. Is that is that what you were referring to? Yeah. And it, I mean, in some ways, like store, like what does that mean to be a store of value? Like I think it, many people like look at the the rhetoric. It's, you know, have fun staying poor. Like that's not what people say about stores of value. That's what people say about get rich quick schemes. Um, and so like even that, it's less of a store of, you know, it's it's an uncorrelated asset uh, and, and it is relatively uncorrelated. So I, I'm not going to, to invest that. And, and as well, you know, the Sort of like Mark Yusko, like stay, get off zero is like the best decision yeah. uh, an, an allocator can make. Like so far, like that has proven true. Um, yeah. So. Real, yeah. Real quick before we uh, move on is I'd say, yeah, both of us are hashtag responsibly long, perhaps. perhaps. Um, and I would also would say that just on my own belief, I think that Rao's theory, uh, not theory, you know, uh, hypothesis on the wall of money, institutional money coming for crypto from so many, a variety of sources. And the only way that they can buy it is through the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which has a limited amount. Uh, I think that that is a very compelling argument. And so far, it's proven to be true. Now, the sort of that's like the soft case for Bitcoin, the hard case for Bitcoin, that it's going to become a global reserve asset that's going to replace gold and perhaps even the dollar. That is something that I think, while possible, uh, the likelihood is, is much, much more slim. Yet the upside, um, you know, for that would be so tremendous that it still has a favorable risk reward profile. So that's my thought. Yeah, I'm much more in line with the wall of money than I am the future of currency. Yeah. Um, so uh, let, let's move back to traditional finance a little bit. Um, Jorge Rodriguez says bond investing is very complicated. Guests on RVDB, uh, I'm guessing Real Vision in general, uh, tend to throw around terms, assuming the audience is familiar with how everything works. But I don't. So can you explain from the basic principles, the relationships between things like bond prices, bond yields, real bond yields, Fed interest rate, uh, a bond's coupon rate, inflation, the dollar, equities, how and why changes in one invoke changes in the other. Uh, so unfortunately, we won't be able to get to all of that. Uh, but if you could just give you know a little rundown for, for Jorge on you know how bond prices, yields, and real yields and uh, relate to things like 
the uh, Fed's Fed funds target rate and um, and coupon things like that. Yeah, well, Max, despite the fact that I studied uh, economics in college, I wouldn't say that I fully understood this and really you know comprehended the nuances until. I started working at Real Vision and, and listened to some of the folks that probably Jorge is referring to, as well as specifically you, Max, explain this to me in a way that sort of made me fully get it. So I'm going to turn this back on you and say, can you uh, answer Jorge's question? Since for me, you've given me that clarity. Okay, well, let's start with you know the Fed's rate. So the Fed sets interest rates. It's like the risk-free short-term rate, and then all rates go off of that. And you know, traditionally, what you could think of is the amount of risk in the investment. If you assume that a short-term bond from the U.S. government has the least amount of default risk in the world, like that should be like the lowest interest rate upon which all other interest rates are based. And then from there, like you take more duration risk. So that's uncertainty about uh, about where interest rates will be. As you go further out on the spectrum of of duration in bonds, you generally would get more. Um, more yield on that. And so um, that's how duration can affect things. Um, and that's that's duration risk. But then there's solvency risk, uh, which is when you start to get into like corporate credit, other sovereign debt in the world. And so, you know, it makes sense that a corporation is probably less likely to pay you back than a government that can print its own money. Um, and so for that reason, corporate credit traditionally pays a little bit higher than that rate. Um, and the rate that is set when a bond is issued is the coupon. So there's an initial price, let's just f for our sake, you know, it's generally called par and that's like, let's say it's a hundred dollars mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, let's say it's got a 2% coupon. So, you know, there's $2 being paid out. Well, if somebody goes and says, you know, I think interest rates are going down and they're willing to pay $101 for that. Well, you're still going to get the same $2 payment, but you paid $101. And so it's not yielding 2%. And so that's how yields go. And then yields go up, say when a bond gets paid $99 instead of 100, then the, then the yield has gone up. And so that's how prices and yields have that inverse relationship. Well, then it relates to inflation too, because if you're getting 2% and inflation is at 3%, then you're actually getting a negative real return in your purchasing power. And so you have a negative 1% real yield on that 2% yielding bond. And so that's how inflation plays in. And basically it relates to the dollar and other currencies in the world because um, rates can be attractive, like the relative rate. So, you know, rates are negative in Europe, well, as they're still slightly positive here. If you are a big, let's say like an insurance company, a lot of them have specific rules about what they can own and the types of bonds they can own. And you know, if you have a limited pool of places that you can put your capital, um, you're gonna wanna go to the most attractive place. And, and that demand creates demand for the currency. Um, and so it, it can play out in the dollar, those, the differences between rates. And, and obviously, you know, this is what I'm talking about is theoretical because you have some interesting stuff like I think Greece yields less than the US government bond. And like Greece basically had a, a, a debt crisis less than 10 years ago. I don't think anybody would say that Greece is more likely to pay back their debt than the United States um, at this point in time. But still, here we are, and their bonds yield less than U.S. bonds. So, you know, what I said about the risk, it it differs, and there there are other forces in play. But you know, really simply, that's that's how I think about bonds. And then, it 
it is very complicated. Every single thing that I have learned about finance has opened up a completely new world above it. And as you learn more, the more you realize that it's nuanced. And so when people try and explain things as being very simple or very easy, like that's generally a red flag for me. Um, like a sign of true expertise in a field is generally the answer. Well, it's complicated or there's nuance to it. Like that's that's a real honest answer. And it's tough because it's the trade-off between conviction, which really helps you feel confident in something new that you're learning and true understanding. And sometimes those are in in conflict. Um, and, and sometimes to have confidence, you have to ignore the fact that you don't understand something perfectly. Uh, so that that's something that I think anybody who's learning about this will have to grapple with over time, that, that conflict between conviction and true understanding. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I think that's right. And I, I think that what you just said, you, you gave a pretty simple understanding. And that is really important to someone like Jorge who's just looking to build a framework. Like I might want to add some complexity and say, talk about interest rate parity and the reason that uh, different interest rates uh, you know, around the world uh, exist or that their interest rate differentials is because of uh, inflation expectations and the expected return of assets denominated in those assets. I might also talk about how you know, the reason that yields in, in Greece are negative is because there are certain rules, as you mentioned, um, that European banks have to own uh, government bonds. So it's not so much a free market. It's, it's more uh, rules-based. But so I think that's adding a, you know, a few layers of complexity, but I think it, it is important to sort of break things down sometimes just so you don't, you know, people don't get lost. Yeah. And you start at that basic framework and then from there you recognize the discrepancies and then you have to go learn about it. And it's it kind of like chemistry, like the periodic table, like learning chemistry, it, I call it the science of exceptions. Like there's all of these great rules and if, if everything followed the rules, then it would be a very simple science and you could just go down the periodic table, everything would work, but then there are all these exceptions along the way. And like, that's what really differentiates, uh, you know, a, a true understanding. And I think finance is like that too. Like there are these rules that come down, but as you, as you move through it, as you move through the science, you start to figure out like there are so many exceptions and that's where, that's where you, you really start to learn about, you know, the plumbing. Um, yeah. So um, I want to move on, though, to a question here that uh, I think we're both going to give short answers on, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Matthew Lansing wants to know, I would love for someone to speculate on the Chinese banks, the PRC, Jack Ma demonstration, and the timing uh, of all of this stuff around Ant Financial. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a ton to say about that. I'm, I'm not super plugged into that world, but I guess I can recommend uh, a few videos. I'd, I'd watch um, some Kyle Bass interviews. Uh, I think he did a great job with Steve Clapham, which aired sometime uh, in November of, of last year, where this is before people, uh, this is before Jack Ma uh, went, went missing or people realized that he went missing. And uh, he talks about the various investment risks that uh, foreign investors in China are taking and perhaps they don't realize that they're taking. So uh, I don't have a ton more to say about that. Uh, Max, what's your take on it? I mean, it's just like a, a confirmation of trend. I think, 
you know, there was a belief in the early 2000s that China was becoming more like us. And and then that that sort of reversed. And we've we've been on a trend of, of increased party control. And and this is just another checkbox that says that 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 trend is still firmly in place. You know, what it means, the, the implications going further, you know, I, I'm not the right person to answer that. But it's uh, certainly another data point. That's for sure. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, let's go on to the next question, Max. Uh, Brian Barry asks, the various interviews and podcasts I've seen say QE is not inflationary despite M2, that's the monetary base, going way up because when a bank buys and sells uh, new treasury bonds to the Fed, the newly created money goes into the bank's excess reserves at the Fed. Um, I'm just wondering, where does the money come from from the bank, from the private bank to buy the treasury bills? Um, uh, won't that be inflationary as that money will finally get used and out into the monetary system? So just a, a pretty broad and, and but broad but detailed question about QE and the impact of QE on inflation or deflation. Um, well, so I would say that the main argument for QE not being inflationary is the lack of inflation we've seen since QE has been rolled out. And it's been rolled out all over the world in many different forms, different forms in, in you know Japan. They just straight up buy the by the index through ETFs, um, we we buy bonds here in the U.S. Um, and it hasn't really we haven't seen inflation, so I think that that is really the best argument against it. Uh, there are are better you know economists and people who work at the Treasury departments of of uh, big banks who who could better explain the mechanics behind it. Um, but one of the things I noticed in that question was he said, like, where do they get the money to buy the bonds to then sell them back? Like, it's not like a quick trade for them. I think they're these are bonds that they already own that they're selling back. Like, they're not buying them to sell them back. These are bonds that are already on the balance sheets of the banks. So I think that was one of the things that I feel confident of saying, you know, is maybe a little bit of a misunderstanding from Brian. Uh, th these are bonds that the banks already own that they're selling back to the Treasury or, or I mean, to the Fed. And the Fed is... Uh, is is creating liquidity so you know the banks wanting to get these off their balance sheet if they if there's no liquidity and they have to you know give up a few uh basis points here and there to get these things to get the the cash that they want like that affects that affects the health of the banks and i think you know that's what they're trying to avoid is is that sort of bleed caused by illiquidity and so that, that's why they're doing what they're doing to to help the banks be able to to maintain uh seamless operation Mm -hmm. Things that they would be trying to get rid of anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I think the relationship between QE and inflation is a puzzling one. I'd say the mainstream economic view is still tilted towards uh, it being slightly inflationary. But people who are saying that it's deflationary, it's not. It's it's in the minority, but there, it's not a, a fringe belief uh, by any means. Uh, I think the uh, economists who say that it is inflationary. I mean, it just makes sense. The more money that you print, again, I'm using that word because it's not printing, it's, it's, it's reserves, but the more you know, money that you uh, create, that will cause inflation. But uh, you know, monetary velocity, the velocity of money has decreased as that money has had a very hard time getting uh, into the real economy. So it's, it's very nuanced, you know, quantitative easing, it's technically just the increase, you know, the, the Federal Reserve has um, been buying and selling uh, uh, different tenors or different maturities on the on the yield curve uh, via Operation Twist since at least 1961. But the the real quantitative easing is that it's not buying and selling; it's just buying. Uh, so it's a very nuanced idea. I would recommend uh, to 
uh, Brian to watch some interviews with uh, Lacey Hunt as well as uh, so Lacey Hunt more the traditional monetarist view uh, and then if you want the more uh, minority view I'd watch uh, Stephen Van Meter's interview with Brent Johnson. Okay. All right. Um, I'm moving on to, to the next question here. Chris Bannock says, I'm just learning about cycles and I'm wondering how reliable they are to use to make forecasts. I've heard some people making amazing forecasts in the future for them, but it seems more of an art than a science. Any recommendations for implementing them with trading at all? Right. Uh, cycles are so important and there are certain investors who say, you know, cycles are not relevant. It's all about focusing on the fundamentals. But Howard Marks believes in cycles. Warren Buffett believes in cycles, although he he wouldn't say it in an interview. But if you look at his his his, his track record, um, you know, he invested in Japan in, in 2011. You know, right as you know, the the cycle was was uh, leading you to to invest in that way. So I think uh, cycles are tremendously important. Um, I I don't have a recommendation for implementing them with trading other than make sure you spend enough time doing your research to make sure that it's not a false signal. Uh, Max, what are your thoughts on this? I think his characterization of more art than science is, is very accurate. Cycles happen, but they're not, um, it's not like clockwork, you know, things can, we talk about like the 10 year expansion, like we've had expansions that were five years. The one that we just had was um, assuming that that COVID marks the end of the expansion was was the longest in history, and so you know that that's a pretty big gap there. And if you are just taking the the mean of like seven years or something like that, like you're going to be early sometimes and late sometimes. So you, you have to be nuanced in your view. And and again, it's it's a data point. It's the the preponderance of the evidence, like everything together. And so it's just another factor that you add in. You, you still maybe. If you want to invest in a cyclical industry, you want to make sure that it's the right time in the cycle. But that doesn't mean you just throw darts at the board and and pick anything in that industry. You still want to do your fundamental research. You still want to find the ones that technically their charts look good for entry. And, and you add up all of those things. And that's how I would implement it into my trading. It's a data point. Everything is, mm -hmm. is to be to be layered on top of each other. That's so true. I, I think if you look at the ratio of the... Bloomberg Commodity Index to the S&P 500, it is at a uh, low that has not been seen since 2000, indicating that you know, and 2000 2008 was an extremely time to go, good time to go into commodities. So the cycle is on your side, but that doesn't mean that the cycle will get even worse before there's a reversal. You know, if we have, if there's sort of a doom loop scenario uh, over the next four years where there's you know, mass deflation and solvency, that obviously is not going to be good for commodities. So you have to manage your risk and, as you said, not throw darts at the board. But I want to go into uh, Andrew Harms, who asks, I uh, hope this is a fun one. When I used to work on the sell side, we occasionally bantered. If you were to win the lottery, to whom, as in portfolio manager investors, would you give your winnings to manage and why? So I want to ask you, to which of the RV contributors would you give your winnings to manage and why? Um. So... Yeah, I mean that would be that would be great to win the lottery. Um, well, I would say that depends on like who, what type of person you are, and how much of the lottery you win. 
So I, I know this maybe isn't the answer that Andrew is looking for. He wants me to tell him my favorite um, portfolio managers. And, and it all depends on the strategy. And, you know, a lot of people allocate to different managers uh, to, to construct sort of a, a portfolio for themselves made up of different managers. Um, but, you know, if I if you take $10 million and you can generate like a 5% interest rate, like you're making... 500 grand a year like that's enough for me I, I can live off of that um so you know some people they want to compound they like want to become a billionaire and do all of that and, and change the world like that's not I, I don't need that so you know I would probably look for somebody who who generates who can generate me some some nice income if, if let's say I have that like 10 million dollar amount but if you're looking for somebody to like compound your money um you you want to go with with the best people with the best track record. You know, people comment all the time, like, man, those fees are really high. And I've heard some people say, you either want to pay the least fees or the highest fees. Like, the middle ground is not where you want to be. People who people who need to lower their fee by like a quarter of a percent to like get your allocation, like maybe you shouldn't be allocating to them anyway. Um, and yeah, so you know. The best investors can charge the highest fees because they they produce they beat the market. So uh, you know that's that's something that that is interesting. Um, yeah, to to give a few names um, to some of my favorites, and obviously I, I tend to interview the the people who I really like. Um, but you know Matt Rao is one of the best long volatility um, portfolio managers out there. He won the the EQ Derivatives Manager of the Year. Um, in 2019, I'm not sure about 2020, having just talked to him about his returns in the year he had, you know, he, he, he really did have a fantastic year. Uh, you know, you've got to have some real money to be able to invest in a lot of these guys. Like, it's not something where you can go and give them 50 grand, a hundred grand. Like a lot of these people have, have like minimum million dollar investments. So, uh, if, if that's not you, I wouldn't go calling any of them up. Um, and then, uh, what is his name? Um, it, Jeff Myers of Cobia Capital uh, has a really interesting uh, approach to investing in, in small cap technology, and you know I've seen his returns, and and we we talk uh, about you know the the companies he's invested. In. He's had a fantastic year, but in a world where both small caps and value have underperformed, he, he's beaten the market since he launched his fund back in 08, um, and with an incredible uh, sharp ratio. And so you know. It's not the type of place where you could put a billion dollars to work. Uh, I don't think the strategy would would you know maybe work at that that level. But you know if, if you've got a small amount of money to put together, I think I think Jeff is a, is a great steward of capital, but not mm -hmm. investment advice. I will caveat not investment. Yeah. Um, Jack, do you do you have anybody, or or do you want to do want to move on? Ah, uh, yeah, I got a few ideas. Uh, so first, I'd say that I want to allocate money to people who can do things that I can't do. So we're, you know, I'm allocating to a hedge fund manager who's gonna charge me two and 20 for investing in Facebook and Google and Amazon. I'm not so keen, I think I'll just buy that myself. But you know, distressed debt investing, I think Howard Marks, uh, his, his ability to generate alpha relative to anything I could do is, is tremendous. So uh, I, I'll allocate to him in terms of the long volatility world. You know, obviously there, there are experts in that, Mike Green, um, 
uh, Matt Rao, as you said. Also, Jason Buck uh, has a fund of funds for volatility. So maybe if I didn't win the Powerball lottery, I won more of a lower ticket uh, uh, amount. I'd probably go with the uh, the, the Rhode Island fund. State Lottery or something. Exactly the Rhode Island uh, State Lottery. Who else? Um, Andrew McDermott. Uh, you invest in Japan. Uh, any other investors who are in emerging markets? Um, I'd also probably have a little baseline. Um, in securitized uh, credit, and that's not a field I'm familiar with. So, you know, maybe Joshua Friedman of of uh, Canyon Partners, um, excuse me, Can Canyon Capital. Uh, so, yeah, a, a lot of names come to mind. Uh, that that those are just a few. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so this is a, this is a question. This is a question that I want to address, and I'm not going to let you answer it. But Jason Markow wants to ask about taxation strategies for crypto. We're not tax advisors. We will never be tax advisors, and we cannot give tax advice. If you have questions about taxes, we recommend that you talk to an accountant and a licensed tax advisor in whatever jurisdiction you may be in. And that is all I will say about that question. Yeah. Um, okay. So John says, Jack and Max, you've been able to get direct exposure to some of the world's greatest financial minds here at Real Vision. How has this changed your own personal investment strategies and who has influenced you the most? That is such a good question. Um, Max, do you want it? Do you want to take it? I mean, who has influenced me the most? I mean, it's hard to say. There are a lot of people... Um, Look, I, I came into Real Vision as kind of like a Fed basher. Um, I, I mean, I would say that that is one of the things that has changed the most for me. Like I used to, when I started at Real Vision, I didn't have any money invested in the market because I was like, it's all overvalued. Like, you know, this whole thing is going to come tumbling down. And, you know, as time has gone on and, I, and I've worked here, you know, that has certainly changed. I don't think there's one person who is directly responsible for like for that sort of thing. I mean, if there is one thing that I think I, I have clung to, it's some of the stuff around, you know, Mike Green and passive and like who is the marginal buyer going to be and, and the importance of flows. Um, you know, that that is something that I, I think is is very important. And that has definitely been that wasn't something that I, I thought about too much before I joined Real Vision. Um, but I, I mean it's really again. It's it's the preponderance of all the evidence. Like it it all adds up over time, and, and you take little tidbits, and you know you you, you don't agree with everybody, um, but it it really it really works out, and it, it's the same thing in um, you know they say like if if you take the average of all of the guesses on the the like the jelly bean jar, like how many jelly beans are in the jar, like it's way better. It, it's much it's very it's extremely accurate, and and so I think. You know, that real vision, because we get so many views, I talk to people who are in all different uh, fields that that it's getting to hear all of that and kind of being uh, the mean um, of all of those ideas, I think has been tr hugely beneficial. Definitely. Uh, for, Mike Green has certainly influenced my thinking. I'd also add uh, Jim Chanos, Jim Grant. Uh, and those are in, in terms of specifically actionable advice. I'd also include... Uh, Ral and Julian in shaping my macro framework and just how I, uh, how not in terms of specific trades, but how I um, sort of think about the market. And certainly uh, to respond to the Federal Reserve as an action that 
impacts um, you know asset markets rather than sort of just bashing it and then getting mad when my, you know your shorts didn't work out uh, I, as you said before before you joined Real Vision. Um, so for example, you know if Julian says, "Oh, I'm a believer in reflation and I'm going to buy corn or some a corn future." I may not buy that corn future because that's not within you know my own remit that I've assigned myself. But I think I'm thinking, okay, reflation, you know, commodities, uh, emerging markets, um, and then obviously rally on Bitcoin. So, so yeah, I'd say I'd say those names. Yeah, and there's definitely. Yeah. I don't think I don't think either of us would be here if it wasn't for for Ral and Grant and you know a lot of the the work that they that they did sort of before we got here. So. Um, Obviously, those two both had a tremendous influence on on me, and you know, I felt that one was a, a bit obvious. So I didn't. Yeah, want to yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yes, we could we can uh, kiss the ring a little. Um, so uh, let's see. Uh, let, let's move on. We we are kind of running down towards the end here, so I want to be a little bit more choosy in these questions. Here's a good one. From Stephen Pickering. So Rao mentioned this week that he will rotate out of BTC at the high and move into EMs. Can he explain further as I thought his BTC was a forever trade to protect his assets? Uh, I didn't see that question. Okay. Also, well, I, I, I'll cool, take nice. it. Which is, uh, look, Ra, you know, Rao will sell any investment that that he thinks is is right to sell. And and he believes in emerging markets. And, and he has in previous... Um, I, I haven't kept up with the insider talks over the last few months, but you know, he uh, a few months back, uh, I think the quote was, "There will be a time when you buy EM and go to the beach because, like, it has lagged so much. Like the it has been undervalued. Or, I mean, it just just has been ignored, and there will be a point a, a point in the cycle when yeah, just you know, it's just it's just that easy. And and, uh, and and maybe there is a you can just throw darts at a dartboard." and and hit and, and get great returns so you know i think he really does believe that and i don't think anything is a forever trade to ral um you know i don't like to speak for people too much but i feel confident in that that he he doesn't really you know believe in in anything being forever you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, I, I also don't want to speak for Rao, but I too feel confident that if he thinks something is a good trade, he's going to recommend it and do it himself. Um, so yeah, I think in his RVDB with Ash um, about a week ago last Friday, he said he has his eye on uh, euro dollar calls or for more retail investors calls on TLT, you know, long term bonds because interest rates. He thinks interest rates are going to decline. Um, uh, maybe some S and P five hundred puts, and then he's not a believer in the inflation trade. But if it does come down the road, as you said, buy emerging markets um, and just relax on the beach. I know he's particularly bullish on India. Yeah. I mean, as we're sitting here today, a piece came out where, where Raul interviewed an investor on Iran. I know he's he's extremely uh, bullish on that that Middle East region and he likes Iran. I believe he's also talked about 
Iraq before. Uh, obviously, uh, I think he calls it sort of like the monsoon region in India. So that that encompasses other countries um, in that in that sort of geographic area. But it's partially because he believes in the importance of demographics. Uh, yeah, that, totally. That demographics drive growth, and a lot of the West, China, Japan, um, we have upside down demographic pyramids, and that there are some areas like like Africa and the monsoon region that that have this other. Um, have, have more favorable demographics. And, you know, there are arguments that, that refute that, that say, you know, we're, that they're not going to be able to have the same sort of like manufacturing boom that helped us build our, our consumer economy that, that built out a middle class. And because we're sort of maybe past that and moving towards a period of, of automation, that there are some risks. So, you know, everything there, there is another side to every trade. Like if there wasn't an argument against it, like what markets would be priced perfectly and there'd be nice flat lines of asset prices until events happen, but that's not how it works. And it's because people have differing ideas and differing time horizons. That's what makes markets. Um, Absolutely, Max, um, because we have limited time left, I'm going to appoint myself as the captain of this interview from here on out. I'm gonna ask all the questions and it's gonna be a lightning round. So Baldi asks, hi gents, uh, hi, gents. New to Real Vision, only recently joined. Would be interested to hear your thoughts on Coinbase IPO and how, if smaller investors will be able to look in. I'm going to answer that very shortly. Um, uh, again, not investment advice. This is my own personal opinion. I think that crypto is an extremely vol- you know, volatile and, and highly speculative area. Um, so, you know, owning sort of crypto is sort of like owning, uh, you know, or investing in a gold or in a gold miner, whereas owning Coinbase IPO, whether crypto goes up or down, it's kind of like selling shovels outside. So I do like the idea of owning Coinbase IPO. Um, obviously, everything is relative to, to valuation. So that's my own take. Moving on, Kevin Siorka asks, and this is uh, for Max, what is driving the increasing 10-year treasury yield in the US? Are yields rising because of an optimistic outlook on future growth, government deficits, or some other reason? Max, your thoughts in a minute or less. Um... I mean, certainly the the rise in 10-year Treasury yields has coincided with Joe Biden winning the presidency, and the, um, the there's been even more rise in yields after the blue wave was sort of completed with the Senate. So, you know, that that is is a decent argument. But, I mean, there's always stuff going on beneath the surface um, as to why it happens. And so I don't like to to speculate too much on on what is driving yields at this point. Um, it, yeah, I, I think, you know, just based off of what it coincided with, I think that's a, that's a fair, um, point to take, but, you know, there are big boys who move markets and, uh, their reasons, unfortunately, I'm not privy to. Certainly. I think the easy narrative that just smacks you in the face is that Biden is elected. He's going to pass a stimulus bill, which is going to be reflationary. So you want to own equities, you want to go risk on, own cyclical uh, uh, sort of value stocks and rotate out of the safe uh, assets such as bonds. And that is investors, what investors have done. What I can say with a uh, you know, reasonable amount of confidence is that the, it's not the Fed who has stopped buying. They have made committed, they're buying a, a minimum of $80 billion of treasuries um, per month, $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. Again, that's, a, that's the floor, not the ceiling. Um, there, the Treasury has issued a lot of paper uh, over the past three months, so that could be related. Um, so there, there's so much beyond the surface, but yeah, the, the easy narrative that if you, you watch a financial news network for 10 minutes, you're going to get is reflation, reflation, reflation. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I would add that I, I believe that there was some talk of actually um, maybe tapering the purchases. Like, I, I think there was like a discussion of it. They haven't said they're going to stop the purchases or or take them down like explicitly. But I, I believe I saw some news that they were like considering doing that. And if you look back, what happened the last time, like the, there's a whole thing, the taper tantrum when they said like, we're going to taper our uh, our purchases down and uh, the market front front run that and so you know if the fed decides or even talks about that the market can try and like front run those actions so some of it is is anticipation of what say the fed might do that's that's a good point um so going on to uh uh john ahern here's something i about myself i've been trying to navigate market hubris versus risk um and then he's, he's he asked about the the yields uh, do you think that the recent spike in bond yields is a fake out in your view? Do you think that there is a ceiling for bonds before systemic problems start to arise? And if so, where do you feel that ceiling is? Are you and what do you look at uh, as sort to sort of guesstimate where that ceiling is? Um, I don't have a specific thought on the ceiling. Ed has said that he thinks like one and a half percent on the ten year is kind of like his point of no return. Um, a lot of people smarter than me with more experience in bond markets, uh, George Goncalves being one of them, um, said basically said like the Fed will try to avoid yield curve control like at all costs, but that that will kind of be like the final bullet. Um, and so, you know, that they have because they they really do not want to go negative with rates, but they can they can implement this yield yield curve control. Um, and so, you know, I think that. There is there's a, a decent decent case for that. Um, you know, I don't I don't know exactly where it is. I think the market will tell us. Like I think it's pretty clear that the Fed is a reactive organization, and so when yields get too high and the market reacts to to yields being too high, that's when the Fed will act. So I don't think it will be the Fed stepping in ahead of time to 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 cap yields before there's a response from the market. And here in the U.S., generally, that market has been the equity market. So I think that will that will give you your tell. Uh, excellent point, Max. My final question comes uh, not from any subscriber, but from me. Max Weethy, what is your highest conviction trade or highest conviction view at this juncture? Oh, man. Um, Put you on the spot. <sighs> okay. Uh, so, I mean, I have a few and I just kind of... Like these are things that I am comfortable holding through any amount of tumult because I believe the upside is is extremely high. I believe the time horizon is long enough to make it through any sort of you know major major correction or crash, and uh, and it's very much like that wall of money like flows argument. Who's going to be the next marginal buyer? Um, and so I like cannabis. I think. It just, as an industry, just like makes total sense. I think the margins are are fantastic on it, and uh, yeah, like institutions can't own it. They cannot own it. Um, there, there are so many good uh, narratives that can be spun around it, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I also think that whatever your view on on climate change is, it's very clear what the policy is going to be and people are signing up to hit these green targets and I don't think it can be done without nuclear. Um, you know, I, I tend to agree with that. And again, you know, 
uranium and nuclear energy is not considered part of ESG, like as the flows move to ESG and and maybe there'll be some shifts. And you know what? It could just be ignored. It could be the redheaded stepchild of green energy and uh, nobody will like it. And I could be wrong, but I don't really buy that. Um, I think you know, markets markets are inefficient uh, in the in the short run, but in the long run, um, you know, the, the money will find its way. So those are pretty high conviction for me, and I'm comfortable holding positions in those through through pretty serious drawdowns. Mm, very interesting. Uh, just to plug a little bit, uh, I'm scheduling an interview with Lynn Alden, who is pretty bullish on uranium. Uh, with a uh, Australian hedge fund manager who invests exclusively in uranium, so it's going to be a peer-to-peer uh, interview. Uh, Lynn, you know, most often she's in the interviewee seat, but in this she's going to be more of an interviewer seat, which should be very interesting. So we should set that up over the next two months. Yeah, yeah, and I know uh, I, I basically do uh, a lot of the the booking for Mike Green. Some of the guests are, you know, his his friends and connections that he likes to bring in, and I know. He um, he wants to talk about that as well. So it'll be something that that will be brought up on Real Vision and and uh, yeah, I mean when when consensus happens and there is a lot of of consensus from people who've been on Real Vision about some of these ideas and you always have to be cautious about risk and I won't I won't make any recommendations of names or anything like that. That's something that we just can't do as, as Real Vision you know employees and members of the editorial team. We're here to to curate. Um, great ideas from great minds from people who can, you know, share their views more freely. And, and that's really our job. So, you know, I, I'm willing to tell you what I believe, but I really, you know, want to stress that uh, this is not advice. And you know, everybody, I, I think where you are in the point in your life, and Raleigh even talks about this with his boomer, you know, like, like the wealth transfer and, and like what's coming up um, as, as, you know, boomers have to sell and change their portfolios, like what point in time in life you are like really matters. And like, I'm, I'm 26 years old. I have 95% of my earning potential ahead of me. Like I can take risk. I can take risk that maybe other people shouldn't take. And, and that's part of the reason I say maybe I'm I'm uh, hurting myself by not being irresponsibly long because you know if there's ever a time, it's now. If I get wiped out, I make it back in in a few paychecks. Like it's not it's not a not a big deal. So you know that that that's what I would say about that. Yeah, uh, all interesting thoughts. Max, this has been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the RVDB during you sort of asking me anything. I think it's great because it's you and I talking, but it's also the subscribers who uh, supplied the questions. So we, you know, the conversation always continues and I hope we can do this again soon. Yeah. And uh, like we're both in the exchange. Like if you have other questions, feel free to message me, you know, sort of the caveats I gave, like I will not give you tax advice. I will not talk to you about what your portfolio should be. I will not, you know, give you a, a take on a name but if you have questions like i'm always always happy happy to answer yeah so max what you're saying is that if uh you know a user wants to know like should i invest in uniswap or zcash you're the guy to talk to that's what you're saying yeah yes exactly yes please dm me with with all of your your questions about you know which altcoin you should invest in that's that's exactly i'm the right guy for that <laughs> yeah uh, obviously uh, we're joking well max um thanks so much for joining me uh, yeah, talk soon. Yeah, talk to you soon, Jack.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.